Hi, everybody. My name is Keith. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Keith. And I'd like to thank the uh, committee uh, for asking myself and my lovely bride uh, to come and uh, share with you. I'm a little bit teed off, though. I have to talk first. <laughs> and uh, I'd like to thank Wayne and everybody and our lovely Nancy, who picked us up twice at the airport. Only we weren't there the first time. <laughs> Rearing out her car, you know. I have been sober through the grace of God and uh, the strong sponsorship in this program called Alcoholics Anonymous since July 20th, 1967. And uh, I'd like to report to you that I have one more day in my program than my wife has in hers. So she has to get me coffee. However, of our 53 years of marriage, which will happen on July, uh, January 23rd, we have 53 years, 18 of it, I was drunk. So the only thing I can tell you is the truth, which is from 34 years ago to now. Now, you, the rest of the story, you'll have to hear from her. You know. <laughs> and I hope she tells the truth. You know. Because I'm really not as bad a guy that I think I am, you know, <laughs> or that I was, probably. <laughs> I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love the program. I love uh, everything about it. I just, uh, the two most important words in AA is what Dr. Bob said in his last talk, love and service, you know. If you love your fellow man and your fellow woman <laughs> in Alcoholics Anonymous as well as uh, out of Alcoholics Anonymous, you got to get love back. You know, and I, I I had problems learning that at the beginning, you know, but I really believe that uh, you have to love everybody because love is a very strong, strong part of our lives if we use it and service. So, you know, my sponsor, I've had the same sponsor since the day I got here for 34 years. And uh, he told me at the very beginning, you know, he says, all you got to do is just give up. Well, I'm an ex-professional football player, you know, and I don't give up, you know. And I said, what the hell is this giving, giving up stuff? I mean, you know, what do you mean give up, you know? He says, you got to surrender. I said, I don't surrender to anybody. He says, well, you will to me, you know. <laughs> and um, he says, all you have to do is go to meetings every day or more than one day. Get a sponsor, which you have tonight. That was my first night, July 20th, 1967. He said, uh, read the big book, uh, do the do's and don't the don'ts. And what the hell does that mean, you know? <laughs> I found out. And um, work with others. And, uh, you know, it seemed pretty simple when he said it. But it isn't. It isn't simple. It's a difficult thing for people with egos, you know, and the strong wills, as most alcoholics are. And this one is, definitely. And, um, you know, I... I got to tell you something. If you came to hear a speaker, you, you come to hear the wrong person. I'm not a speaker. I'm a talker. Because in the big book that I read, it says one drunk talking to another drunk, and I like to remember that because I don't want to be important. I, I was important all my damn life, you know, and I never got anywhere. You know, I had 61 jobs before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> don't laugh. It takes a lot of work to get 61 jobs. Jesus. <laughs> And, you know, for you newcomers, you know, it doesn't change overnight. 
I've had 24 since I've been sober. <laughs> you can laugh at that. I, that's okay. <laughs> and, um, you know, that that's because of the ego that this, we alcoholics have and the strong will that we have and the emotions that we have. I believe we have alcoholic emotions. We can label them as alcoholic emotions. I really believe that I have a maniac up here. And that maniac happened to enter my brain the day I got on this earth. And I believe the moment I swam through my mother's womb and became a person and I let out the first cry, I really believe that first cry was an alcoholic cry. I really believe that. And I believe that the ego was presented to me the minute I stepped on the earth. And there's strong will, that strong, those emotions that, you know, my emotions are different than them out there. Those people out there, they, they have different emotions. And I had to get to Alcoholics Anonymous to find that out. Before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, I, I tried to become perfect. I tried to become somebody. I tried to do everything that you would like because I knew you didn't like me. And I knew you didn't love me. I knew you never would. Because I'm tall, I'm skinny, I'm ugly, you know, I'm just, all those things that I don't want to be. I just don't want to be. In kindergarten, you remember when you were in kindergarten? Good. I remember too. My teacher came up to me, Mrs. Fullerton, and I was kind of in love with her. She was a pretty lady. I've loved women all my life, I really have. That's why I've been married 53 years, right? Anyway, she came up to me and she says, Keithy. Keith will probably remember this, too. Keithy, Mrs. Fullerton, my name is Keith. I didn't want to be called Keithy. That's a sissy's name. You know, and kindergarten, you know, I, the disease of alcoholism, you know, had entered my, my system. And I looked up at her, and she says, Keithy, again, she says, you've been chosen. Oh, I've been chosen. Pretty nice, you know. You've been chosen to recite a poem at the Easter pageant. You know what I said? I said the, the, the alcoholic words that probably everybody in this room, including al have said from time to time in their life. I looked up at Mrs. Fullerton, because I'm just a tot, you know, in kindergarten. I says, but Mrs. Fullerton, you don't understand. <laughs> How many times have we said that, you know? I get to Alcoholics Anonymous, and the real statement is, you don't understand, my case is different. <laughs> I can't get up on a podium and, and recite a, a stupid poem to, to my peers. I just can't do that because I'll screw it up. Because I screwed everything up so far, you know. And from then on, I screwed up a lot of things in my life, you know. But when she said chosen, it made me a little bit softer. And I took that prayer home, and I did the next best alcoholic thing without ever taking a drink, you know. I took that prayer home and I practiced and I practiced and I practiced and I practiced that prayer so I could get up there and not screw it up and not make you dislike me more than I already knew that you disliked me. You know, I just, you know, I just practiced. The day that the Easter pageant happened and they called me to the podium, you know, I got up there and I said, Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder where you are to perfection. I didn't miss a beat. You know, and God, it was marvelous. It was a great feeling to do something correct. And after the pageant, people come up to me and they pat me on the back. Oh, man, you were really good, you know. Jesus, I felt like a million dollars, you know. 
And that's why every newcomer that comes to this program, we should pat them on the back. We should tell them that, hey, they're, they're in the right place and they're going to be okay and everything's going to be all right. Because that feeling I got from in kindergarten, you know, caused me to start out in the world and to just strive for perfection, to, to be somebody, to be important. I became tetherball champion in the sixth grade because I practiced more than everybody else, you know. I, I started, I just wanted, to, wanted perfection in my life. And I needed you so desperately, you people, you masses. I needed your your approval so desperately that uh, I really tried. I really tried, and I did do some things that made me look good and made me feel good. And from the moment that that they patted me on the back till now, I have overachieved for your for your approval. I've underachieved for your approval. We've done that, haven't we? You know, I've lied for your approval. I've cheated for your approval. I did everything in the world to get your approval because I needed it so desperately. And I had no idea that was the disease of alcoholism. I hadn't had a drink yet, you know. No idea in the world, you know. But to me, it really is the disease of uh, perception, you know. Our perception of what it is really isn't what it is, you know. Alcohol has nothing to do with our disease, really. It just helps us along. You know, but who we are and what we are, our emotions and fitting into the world and not understanding what those people out there, those those normies, you know, those normies, they don't understand us and they never will. And that's why uh, priests can't help us. Men of the cloth can't help us. Psychiatrists can't help us. You know, they just can't help us because what does it really amount to is one drunk talking to another drunk because we uh, we feel we feel that emotion when they say, you know, that they've done certain things, you know. And God, what a wonderful feeling that is, you know, to finally talk to somebody. I was 38 years old when I got this program. I finally got to talk to somebody that understood me, you know. And I, God, he did, did he really do those things like I did, you know. And then it gets to the fourth and fifth and it really comes out, you know. But it's one drunk talking to another drunk. It's not one drunk talking to a psychiatrist or, or a priest. Or, you know, they, they, they've never done what we've done. They've never had the feelings that we have. They've never had a maniac up here giving them good orderly direction. <laughs> never, you know. We have. I still have that maniac. And he still starts to give me direction once in a while. And i got to take a tenth step, Keith. You come up here a while ago and said, why do I act like that? And I said, well, you got the program. Take the 10th step, you know. The 10th step is, 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 is a relief step for me because I'm not perfect. <laughs> and I am gullible, you know, and I am pushy sometimes. And I am the person I don't want to be. But the maniac starts taking over. So you have to get rid of that maniac again and again and again and again. This is a one day at a time, 24-hour program for you and me, whether you got one day or whether you got 34 years or 50 years, 49 years like the gentleman down there. You know, it's a one day at a, at a time. And I hate to see people come into the program, you know, and do so well and go to a lot of meetings and get a sponsor and, you know, really work with others. And all of a sudden, they get to be 15 or 20 or 25, and they kind of slowly drift away. Jesus, I don't understand that. I just don't understand how we can accept a sponsor, change 180 degrees, just change completely, 
and then walk away from a sponsor, walk away from AA, walk away from these meetings, you know. I don't understand that, and I hope I never do, because uh, this is where I want to be, and I want to be here the rest of my life. I'm 72 years old, and I want to live to be 102. I'm going to retire when I'm 30 years from now, when I'm 102, because I made a deal with the man upstairs, and he said, okay, you can do it, and I believe in that, you know. My son and I own a little business, and we're just flourishing. Just, we make big old ovens, stone hearth ovens, and makes the best pizza in the world, and we sell them all over the world. I travel three times around the world this year, just selling these ovens, and going to AA in London, in Paris, in Dubai, in China, Hong Kong, Shanghai, Japan, you know, Jakarta, I mean, all over the world. And all the world, I got to tell you, people are in meetings just like this. Just like they might look different, they have different colored skin or different shapes of bodies and different language, you know, but the language of the heart, you know, is there. God, it's so wonderful. So I don't want to ever leave this place. I want to be a part of it and I want to keep trudging the happy road of destiny. That's great. I use that all the time because we do trudge. We trudge because we're different. I'm trudge because I'm different. And I'm not like them, and I never will be, so I have to be around people that are like me. I have to share my experience, strength, and hope. One drunk talking to another drunk, because the secret to the whole thing of one drunk talking to another drunk, the drunk key stays sober, and the drunk or gets drunk a lot of times, you know. We, by sharing the experience, strength, and hope, and treads this road to happy destiny, we stay sober, and we stay... Uh, happy and joyous and free. And if you're new, you know, it's simple. It's not a very difficult thing to surrender. It's not a very difficult thing to become the person that you've always wanted to be. That's what happens to us in here. Might not be the person we think we want to be when we get here, but sooner or later we become that person that fits in, that person that's, that's able to share his innermost self, you know, with another person that doesn't have what we have, you know. It's a fabulous thing, this program, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I uh, feel good to be a talker, not a speaker. I feel good that I can share my experience, strength, and hope. And hopefully somebody, hopefully somebody hears something, you know, that will maybe give them a spark, you know, that, hey, maybe I can do that too. Maybe I can become that person too. Anyway, I started out from kindergarten, and uh, my da- I had a father that was absolutely fabulous. He was um, a guy that uh, never had a college education. He drove a laundry truck, but he was going to junior college uh, night school to become a geologist, you know. And uh, everybody loved my father, everybody. He used to take me in the, in the summertime. We'd go from, I was born and raised in Bakersfield, and go up into the high Sierras and green up in the mountains, you know. And he had a route. Of, 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 that took laundry up there and brought it back the next week and everything. And I used to go with him and sleep on the, on the laundry in the back, you know. And then he took me hunting and fishing. He took me to these streams up in the high Sierras. Uh, Dry Meadow Creek runs into the Kern River. And we'd go up there and he'd tell me, now, son, stand on the side of the creek where your shadow doesn't fall in the water because the trout will know you're there if they see your shadow. And I thought, oh, that's kind of a dumb thing, you know. But I tried it and I got my limit just like that, you know. What a marvelous guy, a smart, intelligent, beautiful man. And everybody loved my dad. He was just a fabulous guy. And at nine years old, I marched in the Armistice State Parade. He was in the First World War. In 1938, 
I was nine years old, and I marched in the Armistice Day Parade, and I had my little soldier's cap and belonged to the American Legion cadets, you know, and my dad belonged to the American Legion, and God, I felt so good, you know. And my peers were along there, and they were clapping, saying, hey, there's Keithy, and I didn't even mind it, you know, I mean, you know. <laughs> and I was marching with my dad, and that afternoon I was throwing the football around in the front yard, and um, a couple of guys brought my dad home, and he was stumbling and falling, and, and my mother, who was Swedish, and one of 13, and every one of them were drunks, you know, <laughs> you know, she said, oh my God, he's been drinking, and he, he never drank. My dad drank a half a glass of beer like he, while he strummed the, uh, the actual uh, guitar and sang a song, and he, wasn't, he never drank. Anyway, they brought him in, they laid him on the bed in, the, in our house, and he went into a coma, just like that. And uh, God, I said, what's going on, you know? I was going to Christian Science Sunday School, and I believed in God and Jesus, Mayor Baker, Eddie, all those good things, you know, nine-year-old kid, you know. And um, 16 days later, I was laying in the, my bed down at my grandmother's house with my sister, and um, my aunt walked in the room, and she said, uh, I got bad news for your kids. Your dad has just passed away. He had a tumor on the inside of his brain, and 38 didn't even know what a tumor was, you know. And uh, I had just said my prayers, you know. To God that I understood, I guess, then. Now I lay me down to sleep, and our father and the whole thing, you know. And I says, I couldn't believe it. It's like somebody hit, a, hit me in the back of the head of the two-by-four, you know. And I said, God. And I looked up at God. I says, God, you dirty SOB. And I called him that name, and I said, I'll never believe in you again. And I didn't. I didn't. After the funeral, I set out to be the man of the family. I had a mother and a sister and me. You know, I'm the man, you know. And I set out to be the man of the family, and I got a job, you know. And I didn't get one job. Alkies don't get one job. We get, you know, I got three jobs. You know, she said it was three. Three jobs. You know, I got three paper routes. And the guy said, do you think you can handle three paper routes? I said, you bet your sweet beppy. You know, and I did, you know. Alcoholics do extra things. Do more things than anybody else that I know of, you know. And that's where I started out. And I uh, got that first check. I thought, God, I got a check, you know. So I went to be... Besides going home, I went to the local grocery store, uh, the little grocery store where all the kids hung out, you know. And uh, I saw all my peers there and my girlfriends, you know, and I walked in. Mr. Ferris, will you cash my check? You know, he said, well, sure, Keith. He cashed that check, you know. I was 30, 40 bucks. I forget what it was. But that was a lot of money in 1938, you know. And uh, I started out with that check, and I thought, no, I got I to gotta make I gotta make my friends feel like I'm important, you know. I didn't really say that, but that's what I was doing. And I said, Mr. Ferris, I'm gonna call my friends in and I'm gonna buy them everything they want. Anything, Cokes, ice cream, whatever they want. And he said, he said, don't do that, go home. Take that check home to your mother, because that's where I really should have, my work, mother worked in this laundry where my dad used to work, ironing clothes for $15 a week. You know, we were poor. We didn't have very damn much money. But I said, no, 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 come on in, guys and girls. You know, they all came in. I said, buy whatever you want, you know, and I laid the money down. I spent the whole check. Then I started home. We alcoholics are about the most guilty people in the world, right? <laughs> and the big G said in guilt, you know. And uh, I remembered later on at the nest in the San Fernando Valley, a guy named Mary Regan, she'd get the newcomers to go, Newcomers said, what, I feel so guilty, you know, and she would always say, son, you feel so guilty because you're guilty, you know, what other reason is there, you know, and I felt guilty, my God, you know, but another thing, we alcoholics have a way of conjuring up the greatest stories in the world, 
we, we conjure up the greatest stories where we can tell somebody, like my wife, I told her story after story after story. And, you know, they really believe us. You know why they believe us? Because that story, we believe, is what we're going to do, you know. The truth. We're telling the truth. And I conjured up the story and went home. I told my mom the story. She said, oh, that's all right, son. Don't worry about it. So I lost the check. So I can't even remember what the story was. But it was a story that was very truthful because I really believed that, you know, I was going to change and I was going to bring her the next check, you know, which I told her. Anyway, I became 13. Remember when you were 13? What a horrible age. For me, it was the most horrible age I can remember. And I was a pretty good kid. And I, Listen to Jack Armstrong, the All-American Man, the Phantom Pilot, and we didn't have TV in those days, you know. And um, my uncle, who was an Italian guy, was married to my Aunt Olga, who was one of my aunts, my Swedish aunts. And um, he put on this big Christmas party every Christmas Eve, and Santa Claus came to this party every Christmas Eve at 8 o'clock and brought me the present that I rode away to the North Pole for, you know, and it always, he always brought me the right present, you know. And hell, I believed in Santa Claus till I was 21, you know, because it was so real, you know. It was so real, you know. Anyway, Santa Claus came, you know, and I ripped open my papers all over the place. And this house, big old house in East Breakers, well, he was a doctor, and he was a wealthy guy, and, he, and he had, we had five turkeys, and uh, we had a little band, and we had a dance floor, and People were drinking and just having fun, you know, having fun. And my girl cousins, because there wasn't many boy cousins left, they were fighting, it was 1942, and they were over fighting the Second World War, they would be pulling on me, and Keithy, come here, dance with me, dance with me, because I was tall and skinny, you know, they figured I could dance, I guess. And I said, get away from me, get away from me, I don't like girls, and I didn't. I was going to be an athlete, you know. Athletes don't drink and they don't smoke and they don't go out with girls. You know, in those days, you know, Jack, that's what Jack Armstrong said, you know. And so I'm saying, you know, get away from me. I don't want to be, I don't like you. And uh, finally, I got so upset, and everybody was drinking, and everybody was having fun and dancing. I stole the bottle of VO out of the bar there, went in the back bedroom of this big old house, into the closet, and I took that top and I took it off, and they're having fun, maybe I can have fun, you know, but I shouldn't be, now, what am I doing this for, I, I'm not supposed to be drinking, I'm, I'm a Jack Armstrong's buddy, you know, and I said, ah, screw it, you know, and I took a big old drink <laughs> out of that bottle, and i tell you something, it hit my mouth, and I choked on it, and it was terrible, it burned, you know, God, it was horrible stuff, I said, how can they like this stuff? Oh, I'm just 13, I'm just a little kid, you know. I said, how can they like this stuff, you know? And then, but a little bit kind of dribbled down, and I took another one, it still tasted terrible. And about the third or fourth one, you know, it kind of just settled down in the bottom of my tummy, you know. And then it happened. That happens to us and doesn't happen to them. That warm, wonderful, fantastic feeling started up my back, you know. Jesus made my hair feel good, my toenails, and everything in between. I changed, you know. We alcoholics change, you know. And God, it was wonderful. I think I took eight or nine swigs out of that bottle, and I went out there and learned how to jitterbug that night. <laughs> we still do a pretty good job, right, honey? <laughs> you see, yeah. We do. And I, and I, and I love to dance from then on, you know changed me. I learned how to talk. I learned how to walk. I mean, booze made me the person that I always wanted to be like, that I couldn't be like before, because I was different. 
I was, I was tall and I was skinny. I had arms like olive oil and Popeye, you know, about that big around. I wanted an arm like Joe Lewis. He was the, you know, champion, world champion, heavyweight. You know, I had acne on my face so bad that when I'd look in the mirror in the morning, I'd say, nobody will ever, ever, ever love me. It was terrible. It was, I mean, it was bad. You know, and I thought, God, nobody ever, ever loved me. But boy, when I that booze, you know, I started dancing with my cousins and I started hugging and kissing and, you know, doing those things, man, I, I turned to a different person. So I drank everything I could drink as often as I drank from age 13 to age 38 because I am an alcoholic of, of our type. You know, I really believe there are alcoholics and there's alcoholics of our type, you know. And I heard a couple of stories in this convention of, of alcoholics of our type, serious people that uh, once they take the first drink, you know, I can't stop. You know, I just can't seem to seem to control something that, that is changing my life, you know. So I started out in high school, and I became a good athlete. I lettered in four sports in four years in high school. And I became a good athlete. I became student body president my senior year. But you know why that happened? I mean, the maniac here is talking now, you know. Why that happened is because I had a buddy named Gene Garnier. He was a French kid, and his mom and dad owned a big, big, beautiful restaurant on 99 Highway called Joso's, and they made their own wine. And he brought me, not a bottle, a gallon jug of that wine, and I put it in my locker, and I could go have a sip of that wine any time that I wanted, and nobody would ever find out. He and I was secret, you know. I don't know what they probably did, but I didn't think they did. And because I had that wine, that alcohol, to give me that, mm, you know, that mm feeling, you know, that warmth, you know, that, that spine that tingles, you know, and that head that just kind of just makes everything all right, you know, I became a good athlete. I became president of the student body. Now, you know that that's not the truth, you know. But you couldn't tell me that, you know, you couldn't tell me that. I got a scholarship to Stanford, football scholarship. I thought, man, this is hit. You know, a young kid, you know, with my mom working in the laundry, you know, getting to go to Stanford, you know. So I went up there, and they gave, gave me a ticket, and I went up there, and they put me in this, this fraternity, and these kids all had $100 bills in their pockets, and they were driving convertibles, and their mom, their dads were lawyers and doctors, and, you know, Jesus, no way I'm ever going to fit in here. And I went out on the Bayshore Highway and hitchhiked. I had a ticket to come home, but I had to run away from that feeling because I didn't fit in. You remember how you just were a certain place and you just didn't fit in? Because my case is different. You know, you were just different, you know. And I went home, and, and, hey, God knows what he's doing. I went to Bakersfield Junior College. Frank Gifford was on that team. From, he and I grew up together. And we had Sid Hall, I went to the Bears, and I ended up with the 49ers. We had about seven or eight guys on that junior college team that were ended up in the pros, in, from college in, into the pros. And we beat Dixie Junior College up in St. George, Utah, 96 to 6. And we had them 90, we had them 49 to nothing to halftime. And you know, at the two minutes to go in the game, the coach Brought the first screen. We hadn't played since the second half. Brought us in. He says, you've got to let him score. We can't walk away here beating these guys 96 to 6. You know, I had about 500 kids up in the stadium yelling for him and screaming for him. You know? So we went out there. You know, every, you know, I was playing linebacker, and they were going to throw the ball. You know, they had 40 yards to go for a touchdown. And it was first down. You know, and went back, and this kid came out, and I chugged him and fell down. And 
Gifford chugged him and fell down and went back there and threw this beautiful spiral pass and hit him in a bad spot right in the hands and he drops it. You know? <laughs> same thing, second down, third down, same thing. The third down, no, second down, same thing. Third down, he caught the ball and went all the way for a touchdown, you know, and we were happy and everything. Next week, we played a team from Mexico, New Mexico. We beat them 105 to nothing. And we didn't like them, so we didn't, we didn't give them anything, you know. <laughs> but I'll tell you something. That's a great feeling for an alcoholic, to be associated with a team like that, you know. We were good, you know. And it made me feel good. We got our name in the paper, you know, and a linebacker makes a lot of tackles, you know, and breaks bones, you know. I can break bones uh, on these little halfbacks running through the line, you know, and it's, and it's okay, you know. It's not against the law to break bones, you know. And, I, God, I just, you know, I, I revolutionized on that. It was just the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Ended up going to San Jose State on a football scholarship. Before that, though, I used to go over to East Bakersville High School where I was somebody, you know, and I was in junior college for sure, and I used to girl watch. Any girl watchers in the room? Come on, guys, don't be bashful. There are a lot of them back there, sitting in the back row. <laughs> and this little girl came out of the music room, and she had long brown hair down to her rear end, you know. And she had this olive skin, because she's part Indian. And she had these gorgeous eyes, and she was very well endowed, you know. <laughs> and, you know, we, we were looking, man. My buddy Tommy and I were watching her, you know. And she came right by us, you know, and I says, God, Tommy, who is that lady? And he says, well, that's Sally Peters. She just moved here from Oklahoma. I says, Sally Peters, never saw her before. She just moved here, you know. I says, my God, she's beautiful, you know. And she noticed that we were looking at her, too, you know. And uh, I turned around to Tommy, and I says, I'm going to marry that girl. Hadn't even met her, you know. But I made a decision, you know, an alcoholic decision. <laughs> <that's it. laughs> and... Uh, Got a date with her, and four months later, uh, we were married on January 23rd, 1949. And uh, she was 16, I was 18, and they said it'll never work. It'll never work. But it's worked for 53 years, you know. And uh, I didn't want anybody else to have her. You know? <laughs> Thank you. I didn't want anybody else to have her. I really didn't, you know. I mean, she absolutely was the most gorgeous thing I'd ever seen in my life, you know. And... Uh, we lived a pretty good life at the beginning, you know. I got out of college, and I was drafted by the 49ers, and, you know, football. I mean, it was kind of exciting and everything, and, but I was drinking too heavy, you know. In fact, I drank so much that I had to leave the 49ers and go to the Canadian League because they were going to double my salary, which in those days, I signed out of college for $4,250, and I had to bring my own shoes because I might not make it, you know. Now they get $4,250 million, you know. But uh, went up to Canada, and they doubled my contract. I went up to Edmonton, and we crossed the border going into Canada, and there was a big Foster Clyde sign that said, Drink Canada Dry, you know. And she says, What an order. I think he's going to go through with it, you know. <laughs> and I did. I played five years of professional football for five different teams because of alcoholism. I was good enough for them to keep me, but I wasn't good enough for them to keep me the next year, and they traded me. I went from the 49ers to the Eskimos, and I went from the Eskimos to the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, and went from the Winnipeg Blue Bombers to the Toronto Argonauts, Toronto Argonauts to the Montreal Alouettes. So five different teams and never made it, never made it. You know, I never felt like I made it. You know, I felt like another failure, you know. 
And back to Bakersfield, where I was born, went in the car business. That's a great business for an alcoholic, you know. <laughs> and uh, one month I made $2,000. In those days, that was a lot of money. And the next month, I'd make $200, you know. And a uh, bad drinker, just a bad drinker. We ended up having to leave Bakersfield and go to Los Angeles. I used to tell her, we're going to move to Los Angeles, the land of the milk and honey, the land where everything's going to happen to us, you know, and down to Los Angeles. And the only problem is we took our, our, I took myself, you know, I took my disease with me and it, you know, ended up same thing, same thing over and over and over again. I just uh, couldn't ever make it. That's 61 jobs. But I had some exciting jobs. I built uh, swimming pools. I built Jane Mansfield's swimming pool. I built... I, I used to do work on Marilyn Monroe's pool and Red Skelton's. I had 75 accounts. I finally, after that 60th job, I finally made a decision, along with the maniac, that I had to work for myself because they don't understand me. They just don't understand me, you know. So I went to work for myself, you know. And I bought a little truck. And my, her mother loaned me enough money to get the truck and some tools and everything, and I, I built swimming pools. I had worked for a company in Bakersfield building swimming pools before that. And, um, God, I was doing wonderful. I had 75 accounts that I did work for, and they were all in Beverly Hills and these fabulous homes, and, Jesus, I got fabulous gifts at Christmas, gallons of booze instead of fifths of booze, you know. I mean, they knew I drank, you know. And, uh, you know, it was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. And all of a sudden, I woke up one day, and uh, I was 320 pounds of fat and bloat. I had 10 accounts left. She was doing the books, and she was getting letters in the mail. We don't ever want Mr. Carpenter in our backyard again. This morning, my new bride found him urinating in a swimming pool. Now, I don't remember that, you know. But she got the letter, you know, and she had, then she'd start after me, you know. Why, could you, why do you do things like that? I don't think I did it, you know. <laughs> you know? And we getting letters like that, and finally, you know, it, we, I destroyed the business that I built up, you know. I kind of call myself a 75-percenter because it seems like 75% of my life before Alcoholics Anonymous, I could be successful. I could climb up that ladder. But I never, ever got over that 75%. Something always happened to destroy whatever I was working at. A relationship with my boss, or they don't understand, you know, or whatever. Something happened, and I would fail. Boom, I would fail, and I'd have to start all over again. God, how many times did we start over, we alcoholics? You know, start, but with good enthusiasm, you know, and like chapter 3, you know, I'm going to change this and change this, and everything's going to be all right, and there I go again. I'm making it, you know. And then all of a sudden, whammo, you know. Failure again. Failure after failure after failure. From a guy that had a college education, he had a, by this time I had three children and, you know, a beautiful wife. And, you know, God, everything should have been different, you know, with me. As well as you, with the way you came up in life. But it just wasn't for us alcoholics. But it was enough time, you know, that we always kept trying. I kept trying to... Change it again and change this. And if I do it this way, instead of the way I used to do it, maybe it'll be okay. And there we go, man. Happy, happy, happy. And um, I got to the point where uh, I was, uh, I was uh, getting my watch out. I don't want to go overtime here. 
I was, uh, I was a total failure. I was uh, 320 pounds, and I was never able to make anything happen. I had been convicted of writing felony checks. I became a felon, almost went to prison, came that close to going to prison. Friends, you know, because I would destroy the relationship by borrowing money or this or that or whatever. Um, my wife uh, and, and kids were struggling because uh, couldn't pay the rent, you know. I couldn't, we bought a little house down in the Wooden Hills, had a little white picket fence, you know, and I thought, God, this is it. And I got a new job down there, and I thought, this is it, you know, we're going to make it again, you know. And then all of a sudden, the alcoholism took over again, you know, and destroyed, you know, everything that I tried to do, it destroyed it. And, you know, if you'd have told me at that time that I was an alcoholic, and that's why these things were happening, I would have smacked you in the mouth, you know. Don't give me that stuff. I'm not an alcoholic. The only thing that seems to help me is I can have a few drinks, for crying out loud. Get off my back, you know. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm a guy that just has bad luck. I mean, I, things happen to me that doesn't happen to you, maybe, you know. You know and, and I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time. So get off my back. I'm not an alcoholic. Alcohol is the only thing i got going for me, for crying out loud. And, you know, I kept drinking and drinking and drinking and... She was trying to, she got a job and was trying to get enough money to save us so she could divorce me. She wanted, she wanted out, you know. And the kids, uh, you know, the kids hated, they didn't hate me as a father, because I don't think kids hate their father, no matter what they do. But they hated the actions I were taking, you know. The drunkenness and the coming home and the falling on, on the steps and, you know, and, and just the fat and the bloat and the inability to keep a job, you know. They hated that, you know. They hated that. And I just kept trying, and I kept trying to function, and I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't make it. So what happened is um, Sally had a scrapbook, and the scrapbook was all about alcoholism, about the pill they were going to perfect some year, you know, and about this and that and everything, you know. And uh, she called the National Council on Alcoholism, and she said, uh, Tim, uh, uh, I have a husband that's a bad drinker, and uh, could I, if I could get him to come down to talk to you, would you talk to him? And the guy said, well, absolutely, you know, without a doubt. So the next morning, God, I came out of a horrible hangover, just, I mean, a real bad one. And she said, hey, I made an appointment with the National Council of Alcoholism for 10 o'clock this morning. And I said, what? What do you mean, the National Council? What the hell is that? She says, well, they're going to tell you you're an alcoholic. And I said, Get off my back. I'm not an alcoholic. You know that. I've drank a little too much, but I'm just, I'm just a loser so far. I'm going to find it someday, you know. And um, so she was pretty persistent, and I said, okay, 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 I'll make you a deal. If you don't yell and scream at me like you normally do, I said, I'll go with you. Because she used to, in the morning when I had those horrible hangovers, she said, you got a backbone like a jellyfish, you know. You're an alcoholic, you know. You don't have any willpower. And just scream at me, you know. And just, just like boom, 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 you know. I said, if you don't scream, I'll go. So I went down there and I, I sat with this guy named Frank H., Frank Huddleston. And I, for one hour he told me his story. He made a 12-step call of me. Can't remember a thing that man said. Except I had nine glasses of water. I do that, you know. And she was upstairs talking to some gal in al -Anon. And uh, when he was over, you know, she came down. And he handed her a telephone number. And he says, he's not ready. 
someday he may be. Here's a phone number you can call someday. Two or three numbers. And uh, we walked out of there, and I was mad at her, and I was mad at me for going, you know. And I got, you know, I'm going to change, you know, I'm going to be different. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to get a business, or I'm going to do something. It's going to be okay, you know. And uh, you know, and uh, it wasn't. It never was. It never was. So about uh, nine months later, I uh, had drunk. I had been drinking for three solid weeks, and I got to that stage where most alcoholics get, where you can't get drunk and you can't get sober, you know? I mean, and it's just like, it's like, it's like everything's oblivion, but it isn't. And you just, you know, you, you just can't stop drinking and you can't keep drinking. You throw up and you vomit and you keep drinking and just, it was horrible. Thirteen, I, I was drinking solid for three solid weeks. So that number, one of the numbers that Frank had given Sally, she took it, and we had one of those little machines where you could make numbers to identify equipment in the, in the swimming pool business, and she took that number, and she put it on the phone in the hall. She put it on the refrigerator. She put it on the mirror in the bedroom. She put it on the mirror in the bathroom. She put it everywhere, you know. I'd look at that dumb number, and I'd never got to call 888, you know. What's she doing that for me? I'd rip them off. She'd put them up again, you know. And so July 19th, 1967, I was this big, fat, bloated loser, you know, total loser, uh, convicted felon, you know, just hated myself and hated the world and hated what I was trying to do. And um, I drove to Bakersfield, 109 miles, because I knew in Bakersfield they have all these Basque restaurants. I grew up with these people that own these Basque restaurants, went to school with their kids and everything, and they put a big bottle of wine, you know, and have this fabulous Basque food, you know. So I, I'd had, you know, I'm needed some food anyway, drove up there. I don't even know how I got there. I had a pickup that was a year and a half old. It, it was an alcoholic pickup. I had an alcoholic dog named Duke who got sober with me, you know. He could jump over the truck, but when he drank beer with me, in the, in the, they had a special bowl for him at, at Nate's and Seals of uh, beer and popcorn. And I'd have to lift him up and put him in the truck, you know, but he got sober with me. Anyway, he and I and the truck went up there and uh, went into this bass restaurant. Hi, Pierre, how you doing? You know, give me a drink, you know, and uh, I got to have some of your food. And I sat down, I started eating this fast dinner and this big bottle of wine, and I started throwing up, and I threw up all over. I mean, there was hundreds of people in there, you know, <laughs> just all over the place, you know. And I got up, and I went in the, in the bathroom, and I cleaned myself off, and I went back to sit down. He says, Keith, get the hell out of here. He says, you're drunk. Get the hell out of here. I mean, a good old-time friend. And I just felt miserable. You know, I got back in the truck, and I went home. The next morning, I woke up, July 20th, and I could not stand up. I, could, I rolled out of bed, and I tried, got my hands on the bed, and I, tried to, I couldn't stand up. I mean, I was so hungover and so fat and so ugly and so imperfect that I had to crawl on my hands and knees into the porcelain altar. You remember the porcelain altar? You get your hand, hand up against that cold porcelain. Oh, that feel good. You Alanons, you Alanons don't identify with that. You know, I mean, we alcoholics identify with that. You know, and uh, I, I, then I, I'm on my hands and knees, and I lifted the wooden seat up, and I'm, uh, uh, and I'm looking down in that shimmering water, <laughs> and on the porcelain part of the the, the toilet bowl was 3922636. And I said, oh my God, maybe I better call A&A, &A, you know. 
brilliant woman and never been to Al-Anon yet. You know, how did she know about that, you know? And I shook my head, you know, and I looked at it again. I said, oh, that's that dumb number she's been posting all over the house. And I knew that the number was on the hall phone in the hall, so I cleaned myself up, and I got to where I could stand up, and I went into that hall phone, and I dialed that number, <coughs> falling over. <coughs> but you know how we alcoholics can respond and look professional and hear professional? As soon as that man answered that phone, I said, sir, uh, it, is this where I'm supposed to call if I have an alcohol problem? You know, real professional. <laughs> minute ago, I said, <laughs> and the man said, yes, this is the place, but let me ask you a question. Do you have an alcohol problem? Do you really feel you have an alcohol problem? My wife hates me, and she's divorcing me, my kids hate me, and I can't keep a job. He said, wait a minute, kid, you're an alcoholic. <laughs> then I got mad. How can anybody tell me that I'm an alcoholic over the telephone? But we can tell, can't we? We can just hear the voice, you know. We get, we get the, the message right over the line, you know. And he says, uh, yeah, he says, uh, you're an alcoholic. I says, don't tell me I'm alcoholic. Do you know me? He says, no, I don't know you physically, but I know you. And I says, well, who are you? He says, well, my name is Clancy, you know. And I, I thought that was a stupid name, you know. And I says, well, you an alcoholic? He says, I'm a recovering alcoholic. Anyway, make a long story short, he sent a guy out to make a 12-step call on me at 2 in the afternoon. The guy came out, and I called Sally. She had this little job, and I says, you better get home. I made the call, you know. She, <laughs> she knew what it was, you know, and she came home with her scrapbook, you know, and this guy's making a 12-step call on me, telling me a story, you know. And, uh, you know, she said, and I thought, you know, this guy chased his mother with a butcher knife. Was going to kill his mother. I never do anything like that, you know. But I identified with his feelings, with his emotions, you know. And the man did a fabulous job convincing me that maybe, maybe, just slightly maybe, I might have a problem with alcohol, you know. And he took me to a meeting that night. He came back at 5.30 and picked me up. And I put my suit on, you know, my suit. I'm 320 pounds. It got to here. I couldn't button it, you know, because it was like this. And I'm, it was July 20th. It was 100 degrees in the valley, you know. And I was sweating and everything, you know. I got in this car, and we drove down to this meeting in, over the hill in Brentwood. And um, Clancy was the speaker that night, happened to be. And he took me to this meeting, you know. And I listened to this. I didn't hear a thing he said, Clancy said, really, you know, because I wasn't really... He didn't know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous. didn't know anything about really what he was saying, you know. And but after the meeting, Bob, this Bob guy that made the 12-step call, he says, go there to that speaker and ask him to be your sponsor. And I says, what are you talking about, sponsor? Do we sponsor Little League here, you know? <laughs> he says, don't ask me, just go do it. And so I was so miserable and, and so distraught of how I felt. And I walked over and I said, sir, uh, would you be my sponsor? And he says, well, I'll be your sponsor if you do everything I tell you to do. Uh, okay. Without, you know, without thinking I was going to do anything, you know, he said, you know. And Clancy became my sponsor, and I went to the first 12 meetings, and uh, something happened. I was one of these people that never knew anything about AA, got to AA, and I've stayed here for 34 years. So if you're here for the first time, you can do it, you know. It's possible. 
The only thing is you got to do a lot of things, you know, and the things that he was telling me is you got to surrender and you got to give up and you got to change, make a major change in your life and you got to go to a lot of meetings. I went to 17 meetings a week my first two years. I fell in love with Alcoholics Anonymous. I fell in love with the hugging and the kissing of the girls and the boys, you know, I mean, the feelings that I got from just finally fitting in. You know, sitting with Clancy and talking with him and telling him how I felt, you know. And then he'd say, well, I used to be like that, and I felt like that. And, you know, the, the vibes that go between one drunk talking to another drunk is the most amazing thing in the world. First time in 50,000 years that it's ever happened, you know. We're the luckiest people in the world to have this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I caught it, and I got it, and I became active. And he says, get a commitment every meeting that you go to. And I got a commitment at every meeting you go to. And I thought, why do I need a commitment to every meeting I go to? So I asked him, I said, why do I need these commitments? He says, because then you'll go. You'll be watching some movie some night and it'll be more important to watch the movie than, than go to AA. But if you have a commitment there, and if you have surrendered to the fact that this is your problem, you're going to go. It makes sense, you know? It makes sense. My sponsor... Started a group in 1958 called the Pacific Group, and I became a part of that Pacific Group. And it was the most fabulous thing that ever happened to me. I became secretary of the Pacific Group when I was seven years sober, and I got involved with all the things that they do. And like the other guy this morning was talking about getting in the car, you know, I mean, I'd get all the guys I sponsored and come over to my house and I say, okay, let's go. Let's get in the car. Well, where are we going? I said, get in the car. Well, where are we going? Get in the car. You know, it didn't matter where we were going, you know. And I had to do that with Clancy to begin with, you know. We'd get in the car and we'd go and we'd put a meeting on someplace or we'd be a part of a meeting that we don't normally go to or we'd go to downtown to, to, the, to the county hospital, you know. And I had a, I had a commitment to the Tashby State Prison. It took 30, 40, 50 people at that prison. They'd never seen that before. We took men and women into that prison. They'd let the women go on the, on the, uh, the, uh, the part where all the murderers were and everything because we were so, we had so much structure in what we did. I got that from Clancy. I got that from the Pacific Group. Structure is everything. You can hear a pin drop in our meeting. There's 1,300 people in there. You can hear a pin drop because we don't get coffee during the meeting. We, and I had to learn all these things, you know. And what a great way and what a great thing to learn, you know, because for an alcoholic, it makes you feel like you're a part of. It makes you feel like, you know, that you can conquer whatever faces you. And I told Clancy I didn't believe in God. And uh, he said, uh, that's all right, kid. He says, go to meetings, sit in the front row, and listen. And that's what I did. I went to meetings. went to a lot of meetings. Sat as close as I could get to the front row and listened, you know. And um, about nine months later, from the minute I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I, um, I kind of had a back sore sitting in these damn chairs. And that damn speaker, he couldn't have done all those things. He's lying, you know. I got very complacent about what I was doing, you know. Very complacent. I had, what the hell's going wrong with me? So I got a friend of mine that got me a job in Saudi Arabia making $10 billion a month, you know. And I was going to go over there and make a lot of money and come back and pay off my bills off, which I'd owed everybody in town still, you know. And uh, give Clancy a loan if he wanted it, you know. I mean, you know, 
you know, that ego took over and everything, you know. So I called Clancy up and I says, Clancy, I said, I hate you and I hate AA. And I said, I got a job in Saudi Arabia and I'm going to go. And he says, hey, sounds pretty good, Keith. You know how the sponsors, you know, they know how to get you, don't they? <laughs> you know, and he says, hey, before you go, come back, come down and say goodbye and have a cup of coffee with me. And, okay, I can do that, you know. So I went down to his office, downtown Los Angeles, and um, walked in his office. He says, don't sit down. He sees the door you just came in. He says, I want you to turn around. I want you to go out that door, and I want you to take the third step. And I says, Tansy, I told you I never believe in God. He says, do what I tell you, dummy, and don't call me and don't go to an AA meeting and don't call anybody in AA until you have. Now get the hell out. And I said, okay, you know, and I started out, and I got halfway out, and I said, wait a minute, Clancy. I don't know how to take the third step. I don't even know what it's about. I said, tell me how to take it, and maybe I'll try. He says, Keith, he says, I can't tell you how. It's one step that in Alcoholics Anonymous, a sponsor can't tell a sponsee how to take the step. He says, if you have an honest desire to try, you will take it. Now get the hell out. I walked out, and I got my old beat-up truck. You're an apple. Didn't have a straight fender in it. You know, never hit anything, you know. <laughs> Both bumpers were wired up, and Duke was in the back, you know. We took off down the freeway. And it came, came out in a way that I, I've been so grateful, so grateful. Because if we really have that honest desire, we can take the third step if we don't believe in God when we get here, because I'm a proof of that. And uh, I started mulling it over in my head. And it came out this way. Keith, why don't you try to accept the seemingly bad as well as the good things that happen to you as necessary for your growth? And I said, Jesus, that, that's pretty good for a big dumb Swede. You know, maybe I can do that, you know. So I said it over and over and again all day long, trying to work. I had these ten pools left, you know, and I got home. And that night I put that little thing in, in the form of a prayer. And I said, Dear God, as I understand, please help me to accept the seemingly bad things that happen to me as well as the good things as necessary for my growth. Amen. And I've been saying that every morning and every night ever since. Ever since. And if you really have a seemingly bad thing in your life, which I've had many in, in sobriety, many in sobriety, if you work through it, talk to your sponsor, talk to your peers, bring it up in meetings, work through it, it doesn't anymore be a seemingly bad thing. It becomes a, a part of your life that you can tell another sponsor, a sponsee somewhere down the road. It, it becomes a part of you, and it disappears. It's, it's happened over and over and over for me. I uh, had something wrong with my... I, I was seeing double, and I was fainting, and uh, I was in North Carolina. I was driving down a freeway, and I, you know, I called home, and I called my doctor that I had, and he says, get on a plane, can you get on a plane and get home? And I got home, and they sent me up to the San Francisco State Hospital, and uh, not State Hospital, the University of California Hospital, and uh, I had a vertebral artery that was totally plugged, and one with only open 60%, and uh, they said, we got uh, two things we can do. We can either operate, and you'll probably die, or we can operate, and you might live. 20% chance you might live, you know. Not seemingly bad, you know. <laughs> I mean, death is something that I'm not too right for, you know. And uh, Clancy was there, and Sally was there, and my friends, and made a decision to go ahead with the operation, you know. That was in 1995, you know. 
and I haven't had a problem since, you know. I mean, I had a little problem, and they couldn't do it the next time, but I take Coumadin, I take all these blood thinners, you know, and it's okay. My daughter, uh, who uh, at 19, uh, I didn't know she had a problem with, the, with the alcohol and drugs. To give you an example of the problem she had, she sold Christmas trees one, one Christmas, and uh, the owner went away, and she had a gallon of red wine, and she was drinking it and everything, and she gave all the Christmas trees away, you know? <laughs> True alcoholic. True Santa Claus, right? Anyway, uh, she was going to move out and move in with a known doper, and I took that kid, and I threw him through a plate glass window. Damn near killed him and me, because uh, she can't do that to us, you know? And I yelled and screamed at her. I put her over my my knee and I spanked her and I went insane in sobriety. We can go insane in sobriety. And uh, thank God for the 10th step. Thank God for a sponsor. And she next morning she moved out and moved in with Joe. And I said, what will I do, Clancy? And he said, write about it. I said, write about it. What the hell good is that? Write about it. Okay. I didn't have the maniac giving me G.O.D. I had a sponsor giving me G.O.D. And I wrote about it. I wrote two or three long pages, and I took it and handed it to my daughter and said, this is how I feel, and if you ever need us, we're, we're available, and walked away. And it was like a million pounds off my shoulders. And about seven days later, we got a call from the um, hospital in Santa Monica that uh, they thought they had our daughter there. She was listed as a Jane Doe because she and her friend were on a dope run, and they turned, he turned over a little sports car she had, and hit another car, and she hit the pavement, and she had 380 stitches across her face, and her face was laid open, and, and they, she didn't have identification, you know, but somebody had copped out and said that who she was, and we raced over there and <coughs> called Clancy. He was there in five minutes from Venice, and that's what sponsors are for. He was there and met the doctor, and the doctor said, your daughter's been operated on seven times, and she probably will not live, and she's in intensive care. But we do provide a a little chapel for people in your, in your condition, and uh, you can go down and pray to the God of your understanding. I don't know if doctors say that, you know, but this one did. And we went down, Clancy and Sally and I, and got on our knees, you know, and the only prayer I could say was, please, dear God, you know, please help me to accept this thing as, this, this, this uh, thing as, as necessary for my growth and my daughter's growth and and please have her live. And then, but if you don't, I'll have to accept that. You know, it was acceptance, acceptance. A seemingly bad thing that I accepted. And I got up, and uh, two months later, she got out of the hospital. She came out of intensive care. She lived, and she came out of the hospital. And for 17 years, she kept drinking and using. And I go to Clancy, what will I do? He says, you can't do anything. She has to take care of her, your business. You take care of your business, you know. That's a good thing to know, you know, because we can't force anybody to do what we, all we can be is an example. If we take care of our business, it's a good example for them that they might make it. Well, I'm happy to report she has 14 years of sobriety. She found it in Montana, for Christ's sake. She moved up to a little town called Coley, Montana, 60 people in the whole town. She, she couldn't find it in the Pacific group, you know. I mean, our, any, any of our groups that we love so much, they're not the only place, you know. For alcoholic, there's alcoholics, not, alcoholics all over the world for crying out loud, you know, making it, you know, finding this thing that's that so seems so difficult to find, you know. So my life has been uh, very, very, very good. I've had some seemingly bad things. I had other, a lot of other things I could tell you. I don't have time, but uh, with the God of your understanding in your life, and in an ability to uh, work through 
whatever this seemingly bad thing is, you know, there are no bad things in life. My life is, today is full of a whole bunch of good things. Just got out of the hospital, had a back surgery. That was seemingly bad, but it's okay. Today I'm okay, you know. I'm an okay person. And uh, I tell you something, uh, I have a son that's perfect. One of these guys that shines his shoes and writes checks and no bad checks, you know, and he saved money ever since he got out of school, you know. And um, he and I started a little business 11 years ago making these ovens, and God, we're just doing wonderful, and we travel all over, and Sally goes with me to London, and it's just fun, you know, a lot of fun things. And um, things are, are, are pretty good. I have another son, Kyle, that uh, he drank and used from the time he was nine till about uh, three years ago, and he finally surrendered, you know. And now he lives about uh, a mile from us in Bermuda Dunes and married to a little school teacher, and they've got some kids. I have three kids, though, and I have no grandkids. Anybody got any grandkids they want to loan me, you know? <laughs> you know, it's terrible, you know? I mean, my kids don't know how to make kids. And I showed them how to do it. <laughs> it is kind of sad when you come to the I mean, we've been married 53 years. I thought I'd be a grandpa by age 38, you know? And it didn't happen because God's will doesn't want it to happen, I guess. But uh, I sponsor people. I go to meetings. I uh, work the steps. I have commitments. I do the things that I did the day I got in here, you know. And it's no different from the day I got in here because there's growth in Alcoholics Anonymous. We all, if we take the action, action is the magic word. Action to me is more important than sitting in a room and reading the big book over and over and over and not taking action. I can't learn from the big book unless I am amongst my fellow peers, alcoholics. That's the only place I can learn. I can learn to work the steps that I've learned from the big book. But you've got to take action, you know. So if you're sitting out there and you're going one meeting a week or one meeting every two or three weeks, you know, I feel sorry for you because you're, you're not allowing God to work in your life. You're not allowing you to become the person you've always wanted to be because it happens that way. Every person that I've ever sponsored or every person I've ever been associated with in Alcoholics Anonymous that have worked, gotten commitments, worked with people, worked with a sponsor, and did the simple things, you know, that it lays out, are happy, joyous, and free. But I tell you something, there's a lot of them that aren't. And I feel sorry for them, because it's all here. It's all for us, individuals. It's not for them out there. It's for alcoholics of our type that can't function in a world, you know, that's so difficult to function in. I had a grand sponsor, uh, Clancy's sponsor was Chuck Chamberlain, who was a pretty fabulous guy, and he a uh, very wealthy man, and, but he, he worked the program daily, you know. He spoke all over the world, all over the world. And um, he used to always say, uh, which I've never forgotten, every once in a while in his talk, he would say, you know, he says, uh, if we alcoholics really believe in the Lord's Prayer, and we really believe in God, you know. When we take hands tonight, this afternoon, and recite the Lord's Prayer, we're going to say the two most important words there are. Our Father. He says, if you really, really believe that, he says, 
that makes us all God's kids. Thank you.